Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Story Club podcast. I'm really excited to get this one in front of you today as I sit down with George Sullivan, founder of The Soul Supplier. For the non-sneakerhead fans among you, The Soul Supplier is an online platform providing news, updates, releases around trainers, but there's so much more than that. As for George himself, we cover getting kicked out of school, catching the entrepreneurship bug, going all in on something, your purpose and a customer first mindset, but my personal favorite parts, George's thoughts around leadership, growing a team, and how to take care of your people, customers, and staff during an economic downturn. But I'm gonna let George tell you all about that. Let's jump right on in. George, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I've been trying to decide which I wanna congratulate you on first, either the 10 year anniversary yeah. for Soul Supplier or the fact that you guys I don't know how long you've been in the number, one million followers on Instagram as well. Some mm. great records there. Yeah, it's funny. People look at that number and think that's like, you know, the holy number of having a million followers on Instagram when in reality there's 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 a lot more to it, right? Sure. When when it comes to that number. But in terms of like what people focus on, that's a big one, having a million followers on Instagram. But yeah, nearly ten years in business at the end of this year. I can't believe that when I said that to people. People are like, ten years in the game. Does it feel like ten years or is it just whizzed by? It it has whizzed by. Yeah. And I couldn't last six months in jobs when before I started this business. So I can say it's whizzed by for that reason. You know, yeah. I would leave jobs within six months if that, yeah. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of people envious of you. I know I certainly am building, it's almost like the holy grail for social media community. Building a job, building your life around something that you're truly passionate about is that that's what at least originally I think people loved about social media that's what people aspired to finding as you've said before their tribe mm. so if we could go back to what you just mentioned you were kind of hopping from jobs like where did everything start let's go back to like not like let's not say the toddler years but like as a child where did it all kick off kind of who turned you into who you are and quick caveat right i had i had shocking shoes when i was a toddler <laughs> and shout out my mum and dad but i had awful pairs of trainers i've seen some of the pictures and i'm like what what are you putting me in right <laughs> you don't want to so, bring them back no no like uh, i love my mum and dad to bits but some there were some questionable outfits is all i'll say so i can't say that maybe it was that thing of like you know you know when you don't have something and you really want it? Yeah. And you're kind of seeing people with those trainers on your feet. But for me, like the trainer thing started when I'd see like probably like 15 years old, Dizzy Rascal, Boy in the Corner. Uh, there was a lot of grime music, a lot of, I was going to a lot of drum and bass events as I got a few few years older than that. Everyone was wearing trainers. It was Air Max 1s, Air Max 90s. There were some Jordans flying about and you start to see these shoes and they were the aspirational item to have. And they always have been, you know, from like hip hop culture, Dr. Dre rocking the Air Force Ones, all of the rappers from when I was really young wearing Air Force Ones and all those Jordans. So they've always been that aspirational item. So I guess it started for me there. Yeah. But it didn't really turn into anything for me until I got to like 21, 22 and I had my own money. So that's it's funny because for me it feels like, and I, I've I've never been cool and I've never been involved in anything cool, but for me it feels like the whole sneaker trainer world's blown up in the last 15 years, but maybe for those more aware, it's actually just been around for a very long time. Is that what you're saying? No, you're absolutely right. The trainer industry in the UK over the last seven years, and we've been very lucky to ride that wave as well, has absolutely blown up. So it was very big in America, the Jordan culture, the basketball and hip hop culture. That was where it was kind of made. But the UK has become its own hub in the last seven to 10 years. And don't get me wrong, there were there were sneaker collectors in the UK before that who I've talked to and I get on very well with the OGs of the game. Yeah. But it really has found its feet in the last, like you said, seven to 10 years. So you mentioned you'd kind of hopped around jobs and stuff. So did you do the classic school, university, and then trying to figure out what you wanted? So I got kicked out of school when I was 17, man. Nice. 
And yeah, nice. Well, yeah, yeah. That's, that's definitely. <laughs> well, so is that a story you can go into? Of course. Or, yeah. There's there's nothing you know. Ask me anything, kind of kind of thing. So. I got kicked out of school at 17. My parents got me into a good secondary school and I was their only child. I still am their only child, I think, right? Um, I still am, right? And, and they got me into this good school and I was the class clown. I, I, I was in detention more than I was in class. Looking back, I was diagnosed with ADHD at six years old. They didn't give me the tablets, but that probably led to my bad behavior okay. in class. So rather than reining my personality in, perhaps using the tablets from a young age, they were advised, um, you, can, you can go without that, but you may cause trouble. So that was kind of what happened. I caused a lot of trouble. It was tough for my parents, but they didn't go back on that decision. And it led to me getting kicked out of school. So I missed uni. Uh, my, my friends were going to uni whilst I was going out, drinking, partying, being a bit of a a bit of a dosser, as my dad said. Did you care that you were missing out on the experience at all? Was there a feeling of like falling behind or? At first, when you get kicked out of school, it's like a badge of honor. And then you realize that you're just missing a lot. Okay. It, especially in that stage of, you realize you've gone from being like, you think you're the cool kid that got kicked out of school because mm. you're a bit deluded. I was a little bit deluded at the time. And then you realize, actually, I'm just the kid that got kicked out of school with no prospects. Mm. And that's not when you really, when that cements, I was pretty low at that point. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know what to do, man, because not long after that, my parents, uh, the 2008 recession hit mm -hmm. and they had to sell their house and they lost everything. My dad lost his job and, and they had to sell their house and had to go and rent a place somewhere. So they, they had nothing at that point. And it dawned on me the reality of the situation, which was I've messed up my schooling. I'm their only child. My parents now haven't got many prospects for now. And what am I going to do? So, yeah, I went through this long journey of going through many different jobs from 17 to 24 to try and find something that I liked. So what were the jobs? And <laughs> did you get to a point where... They put you on ADHD medication or was part of the job hopping down to just not being able to focus? No, I think I think the way my dad wanted to see ADHD and I've got so much respect for my mum and dad, they just kind of wanted to manage it in their way. Hmm. So once that diagnosis came in, it was like, okay, we understand why he's like this a bit more, but we're going to deal with it and we're going to forget that that kind of happened and we're just going to deal with it. So it Very was British. Keep yeah, and carry on. Yeah, it was like we're gonna we're gonna understand how to deal with George and make, make it work, and we're gonna try and build him up as best as we can, you know. So it was kind of it was it wasn't mentioned from that point much onwards. Well, so when this the school stuff happened and yeah. acting out, was there at no point where your parents were like, did the school know? The school knew. Yeah. yeah, the school knew, and I think that was a big motivator for them to kind of be like, this isn't working anymore because he is just too disruptive okay at the same time i found the party life in sixth form like i'm sure a lot of people did yeah and like with everything i took it to the extreme and i guess that's the reason why the soul supply has also been successful is because when i get into something i get into it properly you know i'm all in on that thing i'm, I'm that obsessive mind about something so I was so obsessed with the going out and the partying that, that Dan, who I work with now, we created an event called Filthy Vibes. <laughs> yeah, so this was an event when we were 17 at school and we invited all of our school friends and local schools. We had two events that we sold over 200 tickets using flyers that we designed on Photoshop. Dan was the DJ, I was the businessman. And the third event, uh, we everyone was queuing up outside and the bar owner said, look, I know that you guys are underage and I'm not going to let anyone in tonight because I'm going to lose my license. I was like, man, but everyone's outside. So we're 17, right? Mm. And he kind of knew what was going on, but it was too busy at this point. Okay. He shut the event down at that point. But he did say, my dad was there. He said, if your dad can verify that people are over 18, they can come in. And my dad was like, I can't have that responsibility because he also knew, right? And so the event was shut down. But, but that's what I mean. I'm all in on something. I like partying. I like going out. We'll start an event, yeah, you know? Yeah. So that's oh, where I, the business started. Well, the I business you were going to say the, the party maybe moved over. You found like a warehouse or something to continue in there. But I should have done that. But at the time, I had no resilience. I had no real direction, no vision. So I just thought the events failed. We'll move on. 
And that's kind of the nature of my impulsivity at the time. Well, it was just, we'll try something else. I'm interested, you're saying no resilience. What do you mean, like some things failed and you just gave up and moved on to the next thing? Yeah, so okay, so well. I've grown my my own resilience over the last 12 years. I'm 32 now. And since that point, 17, when I was at school, I had no resilience. I'd, I'd move from thing to thing. I'd give up on things quickly. If I didn't like it, I was gone. And that still happened from 17 to 24. And in the last six years, it's been the cementing period. But yeah, I, I just gave up on that event, man. Okay. And it could have been a good thing to continue with looking back, always on reflection, because there was a big gap at the time. And there were some successful events that still run to this day yeah. that did carry on, that have been very successful. So you look in hindsight, right? I'm surprised Soul Supplier, because you're talking so passionately about it. I'm surprised, mm. I'm surprised Soul Supplier doesn't run an annual Filthy Vibes event or anything <laughs> like that, tie in the old passion and with the new. It's funny, Dan's actually said, like, why don't we bring Filthy Vibes back in some way? But the name to me is just cheesy, man. I'm like, Filthy Vibes. Yeah, I suppose you've moved on. It's from the, your teen years, the, the so vibes are, it's yeah. gone. Like the vibes are so filthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, can't, I can't run with that name. <laughs> Listen, I'm not I'm not super cool. I'm a bit cheesy sometimes, but that name is yeah, like, for me, yeah, it's yeah. like, come on. The vibes are different. The vibes not, are they're different. They're not so filthy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so then you reach this point, you've hopped from jobs to jobs, mm. and let's get into what I guess has been the largest chunk of your life to this point. How did Soul Supplier start? Why? Yeah. Where? So the, the whole time I was jumping between jobs, I was reading a lot of books. I was reading books on tech, especially how to build websites, how to rank stuff in Google. And the reason for that was because my dad always said to me when I was growing up, make sure you get into the Internet. He said, I missed the mobile phone era. I, I got offered two opportunities in the mobile phone era. And I said, that will not work. People won't want to carry around these big mobile phones because they were massive at the time when yeah. you've got the opportunities. That will never work. He didn't see that people would have touchscreen iPhones in their pockets. And he saw that industry go massive, right? So he was very uh, regretful. And I learned a lot of, from my dad about business and finances and, and, and how to conduct yourself, as well as my mum. What did your dad do? Was he an entrepreneur or...? He was born in Deptford, worked his way up as a salesperson in the print industry, traditional print. Yeah which was why in 2008 things really hit the fan because digital print took over and he didn't move on from traditional as much. Yeah. So, so yeah, I learned a lot from my dad and that's why I got into the internet because he, 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 he instilled that in me. Make sure you, you get into the internet. That's where, that's, that's interesting. That's going to be the next big thing. So that love of kind of trainers from all of those influences and the understanding of tech actually led me to one of my second or third jobs in an SEO agency, learning how to rank clients in Google. So then I'm starting to see, right, I can get clients traffic in Google. And then, but this was when I was like 19, right? Yeah. It, it took four more years before it all came together. And I saw the opportunity to start a website of my own. And you knew how to do it. You knew how it all worked with keywords. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I knew fully how to do it. But it was very much um, a low-risk, low-cost idea. I could set up the site on WordPress whilst I was working full-time. Yeah. I could work on it in my lunch and in my evenings. And I could hire some freelancers to help me create some of the content as well. So it was very much low-risk, um, low-cost. And I always say that to people. If there's a way you can validate your idea because it's low risk and low cost. That's the best thing. Some people come up with a great idea, but it's very much high risk, high cost. And to validate that idea would be very dangerous. It would, you know, you see people go on, say, Dragon's Den. I've spent all my life savings on this, they say. Yeah. And it puts you in a position where you're not able to make decisions with clarity. So I always made sure I had money. I always made sure I, I, I had time. And I made sure that I could have my full-time job as well as a, as a stable fallback. So I was able to make decisions from a place of clarity yeah. in the early days. Mm. So that's interesting because obviously you get an idea of ADHD and I know it's in a spectrum from extreme mm. to less extreme. But you found something you were passionate about and you did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? You knew you wanted to be your own boss. Is that why you started investing heavily in reading and focusing your energy mm. there? Yeah, I'd seen, I'd seen my mum be, be 
like she she was uh, born in Gravesend. She'll hate me for saying that. Born in Gravesend, moved to the city and worked her way up as a legal secretary. And I'd seen how stressed she had been over her career, traveling into London on the trains, getting delayed, working 12 hour days. Mm -hmm. And I was like, from my mum and dad, they both kind of said, you don't want to do this. So I was like, I need to work for myself. Again, it was just, your parents are big influences and, and that was something that was instilled in me from younger. So I could almost blame them for me having multiple jobs, but I'm not gonna do that because <laughs> that was me and my impulsiveness. But yeah, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. But I think that's amazing that your parents were like that because you know, a lot of parents, it's about security. They want their kids to follow the traditional path. Mm -hmm. And even if it is miserable on a train, it's a career in London, in the big city, something that's a stable job, especially 10 years ago. Yeah. You know, because there's obviously been an awakening since the pandemic where people want remote and more of their life back. Mm. But you'd, you were kind of ahead of the curve thanks to your parents instilling that in you. Yeah. So we spoke about you had this aspirational from like the rappers and stuff wearing trainers. What made you decide that's what the website was going to be about? Like, I'd imagine you'd different ideas based on your experience. What made you go all in there? So I had various business ideas before the sole supplier, none that I were truly passionate about. That's the most important thing. So there was Filthy Vibes, which I did really love at the time. Yeah. There was a shoe repair delivery company where I was going to work with the local shoe repairer and deliver shoes to people in the local area how hard that would be to scale, you can imagine, right? Yeah. There was an, a business called Explore My Property, which was high quality property videos. Again, I, I couldn't buy property. I didn't care that much about it. Yeah. I knew a bit about video. So were you just thinking about what could make me money? Yeah, I was always time? looking, I was always looking to solve problems. Okay. And I would speak to like a few friends who were estate agents who are a bit older and they'd say, they'd say, you know, we want to display this property in a great way. Because I was in an area where there was a lot of expensive properties at the time bordering on our area. So I'm like, yeah, there's, you could use video for this. You know, I used to have a video camera when I was younger. So I saw that opportunity, but it was quite high risk, all the equipment. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sales needed. I was no good at sales. I was like a crazy kid at 18 with no sales ability. <laughs> no one would trust me to film their expensive properties. So these ideas were just flying about. I was trying to solve problems, but... I was then buying shoes and wearing them. I got the trainer bug. Okay, so sneakerhead is what I was called. Yeah. And what people are called. Like, you know the term. You've got your Yeezys on your feet. <laughs> I became a sneakerhead. I just got the bug for it. So I was buying them for myself. And then I was buying pairs to sell as well. So I'd go and queue up at Carnaby Street and other places, at Size, at Foot Patrol, at Foot Locker. And then I'd buy a few pairs myself. Back in the day, you could buy like, you could buy like four or five pairs of the same shoe. Yeah, I, I could walk away with loads of bags. Yeah. And that was just normal. Like you'd still have pairs that were worth a lot of money available one or two days. It's not like it is now. They sell out in seconds. Sure. So I just had all of this info. There wasn't a good place to find it online. It was everywhere. It was scattered. And that was, that was it. The sole supplier was born. I just knew that I had to give what I knew to other people. And hopefully there'd be a market for it. Did, do you think, did you care about community at the time? Did you care about finding your tribe or was this just like, this is something I'm passionate about. I'm just putting it out there. Let's see what happens. I don't know how much I, I cared about finding my tribe, but reflecting on it, I definitely felt like I'd found my tribe becoming a sneakerhead. Yeah. Yeah. And I still have that, feeling of being in that tribe today even though I'm 32 that will never leave me I wear trainers every day if someone tells me I've got to wear smart shoes I'll find a loophole as to how I can wear trainers no. <laughs> don't get me wrong I do dress smart sure sometimes but trainers are my go-to and casual clothing casual clothing that that looks looks the part and that that has been a big mission of ours to just change that you know we've done campaigns like track suits over suits and bringing that kind of culture to the business world, especially. Yeah. People can come in and wear what they want here. But so, yeah, it's always been, that's been my tribe. 
So what's black tie as a sneakerhead? Yeah, black tie as a sneakerhead is the same black tie outfit. Yeah. With a pair of Jordans on your feet, probably. All black? Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah that That's is. what people do, yeah. Or my, my wedding outfit in the past has been like a beige linen suit in Spain with a pair of like like chunky Alexander McQueen's or some other type yeah. back in the day. <laughs> I've done that a few times. I mean, George, you've kind of reached a point in your life and your career that no one can be mad at you. They've mm. got to expect it because you're representing... Mm soul supplier yourself and your biggest passion yeah. no one can tell you off right and been any angry braids or anything or? no no no, no that's good. not not yet no um more angry because you know back in the day we were pretty crazy when we'd go out but apart from that uh, no angry brides because of the uh the trainers i was wearing but just to come back to your thing about community yeah there's always been a big community in the sneaker game like when i was queuing up i'd meet loads of people and we said this before communities built online but it was it's, it's cemented offline mm -hmm. that's where people connect you know that's where people see someone's full outfit they get to speak to them see their body language their expressions how they move how they interact that's everything so when, how, how did you get to that point what was the first couple of years was, was soul supplier the name from the start oh, that is a question i haven't really been asked ever man so what's the soul supplier the name from the start it's quite difficult to come up with a name, isn't it? Well, so what was the WordPress website? So that was the sole supplier. Ah, okay. You know, we had a logo that was so bad that I designed on like paint, okay? On paint, on windows. Yeah. yeah. And it had the S, it had the O as the London I, <laughs> and then the L was Big Ben, and then the E had some swirls at the end. I wanted to find a name that had a ring to it, so Soul Supplier is alliteration, right? The double S. And I wanted to find a name. I thought that I had to find a name that, that told you exactly what it did. Soul Supplier. In reality, in hindsight, as you go through your business career, you realize that some of the best names don't explain the product. Sure. If you told me, ask, tell me, what's Apple? I would not tell you they make iPhones and Google, MacBooks if Amazon I didn't know. Google, everything. Yeah. Exactly, right? So... And you learn a lot about brand building and how that's not important. But at the time, I thought it had to have a ring to it. Yes, that's probably true. So people remembered it and it had to explain the service. Would you, if you could go back, do you think you'd give it a different name or sole supplier? You've been with I, it for so long. I've considered that. I love the name and people still say I really like the name. It's got a ring to it. It's yeah. kind of in my head. So no, for that reason. But in terms of the way it has potentially misled customers to what we do, <clears throat> yes, because... We are, we work with 40 different partners to send traffic to them mm -hmm. to show you the latest and greatest shoes from all of these partners. Search and comparison site with content as a big arm of that. Sure. We don't supply them ourselves. So people have very much got that confused sometimes. And it's still to this day a problem with our positioning. Interesting. Yeah. Because uh, you feel like after you've been around for a certain period of time, mm. people would know or they could check and see what it is you guys actually do. But I guess if you wanted to break into any new areas or get in front of a new market, that's where those troubles could come along. Yeah, it's new people. New people and people think that we can get shoes wholesale. Can you get us 500 pairs of this and ship to Japan? We're like, that's not how the site works. <laughs> yeah. People want everything now, you know. like they, they, they might not have even checked the site properly. They just see a sneaker, a big sneaker company and think, you can give me wholesale or you can get me the product. So, yeah. I mean, one of the many great things about Soul Supplier that's given you guys longevity is your adaptability mm. for changes in the industry, changes with the internet, everything that's gone on. Because you started at WordPress site, like you said, mm. and you've kind of filled us in there on where you are now um, for 40 affiliate partners and a large content branch. Can you talk to me more about the evolution of that? Because I know you're, quite heavily into retail technology. You've got mm. a talk coming up in April where you're gonna be talking about mm. changes for other retailers. Can you break down how you've done that for Soul Supplier, but also your, people can get lazy in an industry. So where your willingness to keep up with, I totally understand it's a fashion-based thing, keep up with the trends of trainers, but just the whole aspects of the business. Yeah, so the mission of the sole supplier is when you think of footwear, you think of the sole supplier. When you think of trainers, you think of the sole supplier. When you think of music, you think of Spotify. When you think of iPhones, you think of 
Apple. So it's, it's getting that, that name. So helping the, the average Joe or Josephine, the average Joe or Josephine get a great pair on their feet. So, that, so that's been the mission from the start. And it just started as a blog. I was in my parents' spare bedroom, coming home after work, writing articles and product pages of the shoes that are coming out and the partners that have got them, the retailers, and then posting to Twitter to try and rank number one in Google. That was all I did for like a year. Same stuff over and over again. Same repetition. And then when we started getting some rankings mm -hmm. and we started making some money after nine months to a year, then you start to think, okay, how can we now expand this product? Because can it stay a blog forever? How do we serve our customers with what they want in a more personalized way? Okay, so we'll start gathering emails. And then you start to think, well, how can we tailor that email list? Okay, we'll start tagging them with their interests. And then you start to think, okay, well, what's going to be a better way to reach them? We'll get an app and we can notify them by push. So it's the constant evolution of how we're serving our customer and the, the strategies we're using to do that is, has been the biggest evolution. And technology has been a big part of that. Well, do you also think it's come from you internally, like a willingness to invest in the business and not get complacent? Because you're like, how can we make our customers' lives easier? Yeah. But is there also an aspect of how can we grow and where can we put the money to put it to work? Yeah, I think the biggest danger as an entrepreneur can be focusing too much on the, the bottom line and the revenue day to day, that takes you away from your purpose and it takes you away from your customer. The customer doesn't give a shit if you make money. The customer cares if they get what they want. So when you focus on the customer, a byproduct of that will be money. But if you focus on the money, a cost of that will be your customer. So it's always been about, and don't get me wrong, I've, di I've, I've lost sight of this along the way at points. But you always have to bring it back to what does the customer want? And when you start to understand their problems and then how to solve those problems, the solutions become clearer. Yeah, you yeah. almost preempted my next question there because mm. I was going to say, how have you remained so customer focused? And you said you've almost lost your way a couple of times. Mm. Did things happen that snapped you back to customer? I think you focus on... You asked. You asked about how have we how have we spent? Oh, what was the question? It was it was related as well before that, that kind of links into that. We've we've lost sight because when things started going really well that we did for the customer, money started to come in, mm -hmm. and then you perhaps start to lose focus and you start to say, well, we could make more money if we do this, but does that fit with the customer or is it just because you think you can make more money doing it? For example. We started a marketplace at the time when the sole supplier affiliate was growing so well. These shoes sell out very quickly, as you've experienced, right? You said it was really tough to get your hands on a few. Yeah. And we were helping customers get them at retail from one of many partners. But once they're sold out, people still want them. So after a few years of being in business, we thought we'll start a marketplace because we can make money off of the second part of the sale. When someone has, has not managed to get a retail, or they have, they can then buy secondary. Yeah. So we were almost being, and this isn't greedy, but it is a little bit. Well, almost, it actually almost makes sense now that you're talking about it. It makes sense. But that was a very much, at the time it wasn't solving the problem exactly of what they wanted. And it was definitely trying to do two very different things mm. when we had one part of the business that was growing heavily. So we spent over a hundred thousand pound building that marketplace and probably over 50, 60 grand promoting it. And it turned out that we couldn't juggle resources. It was a completely different set of logistics. We hadn't built the right systems for scaling the main business. Okay. And we we had to shut that down. We had to shut the marketplace down. And then a few months later, StockX popped up and they wanted to authenticate products in hand. And we were like, that's a crazy idea. That's going to cost too much. It's going to take too long. And then about three months after that, StockX got $5 million of investment. And to this day, they've had half a billion of investment. So there's a story in <laughs> how you should validate the market, how you should truly understand what your user problem is, and you should build systems for scaling. Because if we understood all of those things and we weren't so chaotic, 
we would have continued running the marketplace. Yeah. And could we have been in StockX's position now? I have to ask, is it because you've got the reputation and there is a customer base there, is there a potential down the line you think you'd try the marketplace angle again or because of your experience, you guys are doing your thing very well, it's almost risk averse after what happened? So we launched our marketplace again last year. Oh, nice. Congratulations. The sole market. Thank you. Yeah. So the sole market's using tech to authenticate right now, and we're planning to scale that even further. And we've done it in such a different way now. And the market is more competitive, but we're able to support the project in the right way. Okay. We've got a great team, an amazing team. We've got the right systems in place. We've got the right roadmap. We understand the different risks of each product and we can do it now. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any of that at the time. Well, because it sounds like you guys were going to be first to market, but now you could maybe poach some StockX people because there's people who've, who are in it and I guess maybe supply chains are more up to scratch with somebody sending shoes to mm. somewhere to validate it's real and then post on, I guess. Yeah. Post offices and stuff understand that process now as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big problem, yeah. It's... uh. You can look back in hindsight, but but the 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 gratitude I have is that we grew yeah. very considerably from that point onwards. And even though StockX grew faster, much faster, and their business is valued at much more today, can I really be ungrateful that we've been almost ten years in business? We've grown very well. We've got an amazing team, and we've got some brilliant plans for the future. You have to bring it back to that sometimes. Perspective is everything. Yeah, it's very easy to sit there and go. I can't sit there in regret. Mm. Yeah. And you've got one of the big things that we've mentioned a couple of times and I'd like to dive in a bit more now. You've got something, I'm, I don't, unless I'm wrong, StockX doesn't have. You have a community. Mm. StockX is just a marketplace, unless you can correct me if I'm wrong. They're just, you know, buying and selling trainers and other products. They don't bring people together the way you do. StockX went for an aggressive scale from the start. They, they were one of the best digital businesses that I've seen scale in, in, in all of my years in business. I guess at a cost of that, it ruffled a lot of feathers and their growing pains are very evident on all of their social media channels. It's a great business in concept, mm -hmm. but I also understand that there's a lot of customers that are very unhappy because of their growing and, and their scale, their scale of growth. So we've done our marketplace in a slower way with excellent customer service at the forefront. Yeah. We've got five-star reviews on Trustpilot. Every customer so far, our return rate is, is minimal. Our chargeback rate is next to nothing. Yeah. We've got verified power sellers that we work with one-to-one. -one. It's a very different experience to StockX, but then they've got the benefit of ultra-fast growth, whereas we're doing it in a more slow, consistent, and measured way, yeah. which is all about the customer. So it fits with what you said about we're looking after our community. That was why we built the Soul Market. It was to make sure the community have a good place that they can trust to buy and sell with fast payouts and excellent customer service, things that someone like StockX are not doing as well on. Yeah. And that's stuff we know from the market, from research, from team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not to go against competition, although I have nothing to lose. I mean, StockX is more of a business. It started as a business. It started mm. as probably how can we make money? And as you've covered already, yours is very market orientated. It's mm. put yourself in the customer's shoes. What do they want? How can we go right by them? put customer service first, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, so so when we validated the sole market, we, we looked at the market as a whole, the, the marketplace space. We mapped it out. Um, we put, you know, it's the thing called the Johari window where you have different sectors. So we had who's got sneaker community, who's got authentication, who's got tech authentication, and then you start plotting the different competitors and you start mapping out who's got what. And then you can find your position in the market. So once you understand where all of the competitors sit, you can p p put your product in the right area and you can understand what USPs you're going to go after. And the biggest pain points of the market were for sellers, slow payout. And for buyers, it was horrible customer service. So we wanted to solve both of those things very quickly as, as the forefront. And, and tech authentication is at the heart of that because... Yeah. Um, with in-hand authentication, it takes buyers sometimes three to four weeks to get a shoe. And with ours, they can get the shoe a lot quicker. So 
that's where we we entered the market and that comes with like a lot of analysis and validation which we never did before yeah yeah when i when i'd come up with ideas before it'd just be instinctive it's like adhd style business ideas right it's just like let's do that we've got money great follow your gut yeah. yeah follow your instinct but when you've got a company with people in it and expenses and money and you've got people you're responsible for you need to do more due diligence well so how have you found that shift george going from a website in your yeah. parents house building a community slowly to becoming a fully fledged business community content create like content creation how have you personally found that there's a time I was on the ground from the start. I was the face of the business, presenting the unboxings. People understood that George was the sole supplier. Sole supplier is George. Yeah. We were getting so many clicks in Google as a result of me putting my face to the business, right? And I stopped doing that after about three or four years because the business started growing considerably. And I thought I needed to get off of the ground away from the camera and focus more on the management, the CEO stuff, right? How wrong I was because that meant that certain channels were affected, certain Google rankings started dropping, and it's a very hard thing to measure. But the value of putting your face in front of the business and being on content for years is it's, it's unbelievable, the ROI you'll get on that. And also, correct me if I'm wrong, George, but I feel like you enjoy being a big part of the community, being the face and yeah. being that. So not only was there the impact in the business, but for you going more into the CEO kind of thing, yes, there's a natural progression, but some people hmm. hate that. What's it they say? The loneliest position in a business is the CEO. Yeah, you, this... you strike me as somebody who more enjoys being in the mixer in the thick of it with the people. But you have to learn that, right? You have to learn that by going away from the content for a few years and actually getting a bit lost in the CEO role, and the CEO role is different for every CEO. But in our business, the CEO role involves being front of the business, being on camera, creating content. We are an aesthetic product-driven business with community. It needs people like me and other passionate people in our team to be on camera. So you, you only learn that by not doing it for a while and seeing the effects of it. And so in the last year, and especially the last six months, I'm back at it full steam. So... Content. It's only been the last year you've been getting back into it. How long a hiatus? Were I was you? on and off. Okay. I was on and off. But for, <laughs> it was like four years of content, two, three years off. And the last year, and especially the last few months, going back in full steam with content creation across all platforms. Like I'm the, I'm the face of the TikTok account. Yeah. We've been generating like the last 30 days, we've done over four and a half million accounts reached on TikTok. Um, it's going quite well. Yeah, yeah, just a little. And yeah, we're trying to do two videos a day. I'm back on the Instagram. We're doing podcast style stuff. It's it's essential. But the ROI on, on that, putting your face to, to camera is is everything. Well, so, so you've said it's essential. Now, I guess one of the risks that can happen with becoming, I know you're not a one-man content machine because you've got a mm. team, but doing it for the business continuously and to such a high degree there's always the risk that the content process could become a bit of a grind rather than a passion project. Are you finding that at all? Or are you still, you just thrive on it? Do you love it? I love it. Yeah, good. Yeah. You know, like you're, you're, you're doing this, right? Yes. Like you like yeah. talking to people. Yeah. You enjoy talking to people. You know, I heard Schwab say it's like he loves talking to the clients that he works with. And it's so true. It's like, I love jumping on content. I get to chop it up with my best mate Dan on some of this new style of content where it's kind of like, it's a podcast style clip. They're very short podcast style Yeah, clips. the ones that kick off and tick off TikTok. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're talking about certain trainers. Me and Dan just get to have that chemistry on camera. That's never going to get old. He's my best mate. You know? Yeah. 25 years I've known him. So content's fun, but it's very easy to diminish the power of it. And I see a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners do this. They, they kind of say, I need to be running the business. But actually, you're the one that's not going to leave your business. So if you bring someone in to do content and then they leave, they take their face and that, that brand affinity that they've built with people with them. And I've seen this happen to other companies who have put like people on presenting and content. And then they, those presenters leave. They take all of that audience somewhere else. Yeah. 
it's very risky. So what's the only thing you can do as a CEO? You're probably not leaving the company as a CEO. So probably you can you can jump on the content and find someone else to help run the business. And and some of the best businesses now in the game, they do this precisely. So I was I was on a panel with with George Heaton from Represent. Yeah. He's not the CEO of Represent right now. He's the creative director. Mm-hmm. And they've got this great CEO called Paul Spencer running the company. So there's an example of someone that's humble enough to step away from I'm the CEO, which I would do as well in the future. Yeah. To just be the creative director and the, the face, the founder. I think the guy from Gymshark did a similar thing as well. Ben the, Francis yeah, did a he, similar thing. Yeah, because yeah. he stepped back, let a CEO take over. I guess for future planning, and obviously you're so passionate about the business and there's no plans to sell anytime or maybe, isn't there always the risk? So some people maybe like yourself who want to start creating content for their business. If you become the face of it to such a strong point, for people who maybe want to have an exit plan, is there not the risk that if you're the face and then you sold and then moved on after two years, that almost makes people to not like not want to risk buying the business that is a risk yeah it's definitely a risk and and right now we just we need to fulfill that mission of getting people to understand the soul supply is where you need to go if you need the next pair of shoes that's what we need so there's a big journey it doesn't mean i wouldn't consider those options in the future Mm. and it also doesn't mean you can't get people as presenters on content it done in the right way foot asylum did quite a good job of it they got uh, Young Philly, Chunks, and some of those guys to set up their YouTube channel and run it. And they absolutely grew in three years. Yeah. And they still do work with them to this day. Granted, Young Philly and Chunks are now much more expensive. But that, for that period of time, made Foot Asylum what it is. Mm-hmm. It massively helped them scale. They did it in the right way. It wasn't a short-term thing. They were contracted up for a long period of time. There was multiple episodes for, for many months and years agreed. That's how you do it. If you're going to invest in people as presenters, make sure you, you're doing it for the long term. You've got a plan for when they, they uh, get famous in their own right. You know how you're going to increase their salaries and they're well looked after. Yeah. Some people are like, oh, we, you know, we made you what we are. We're going to keep paying you the same. Of course those presenters are going to leave. Yeah. 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 Ego can get in the way there. It's like, we made you. Yeah. yeah. So to answer your question, if you were going to sell the business and you were the front man, you need to set up a robust plan for presenters to take over. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I try and avoid going through coronavirus since we're two years moved on mm. from it, George. But I'm curious, what was that period like for Soul Supplier? You guys are obviously online and there's that sense of community. Mm. Was it, a, I use the term very loosely, was it a good period for the business because people were spending more time online? and having to find those relationships there. Yeah. Um, as much as coronavirus was horrible, and it was horrible in the sense of just the chaos that it caused for people, right? And and people didn't know what to do with their lives and how their lives were going to change. And when it happened, people stopped spending for around four weeks. And when they realized, some of them, that they were on furlough, that they wouldn't be able to go away and that they'd have a lot more money in the bank sitting there, yeah. they just went crazy on buying stuff for their home, on clothing, on trainers. And so COVID pr- produces artificial spike mm-hmm. on revenues where I think we like doubled our revenues in, year, in, the, in, this, in the year. Close. It was like 70% increase in growth or something. And did you understand that the... Not at time, the, no. No, okay. No. So at the time, we had a suspicion that would this continue? But then what's happened as a result, which we did predict, is inflation. Prices are going to go up. The handouts that they were given from the government were going to cause people to then have to pay a lot more in the future. And that's exactly what's happened. The pendulum has to swing, right? If the government are giving all of these handouts, everything's going well, everyone's got disposable income, furlough, furlough, furlough. Yeah. Then at which point does it swing back to, to, oh, now we have to increase prices. We need to get uh, our money back from the furlough that we've done. And that's exactly what's happened. So now we're seeing, um, with the economic crisis that's going on, people are spending less. Trainer prices have gone up, some of them by 30%, 40%. And... It's tough right now. Which is interesting because I was reading an article recently and it was saying that people were spending less on necessities actually and more on luxury goods. Now, I think the conclusions they were drawing from that is part of people still want to look good and successful on Instagram or whether they're in content around 
trainers and stuff. Are you not finding that as much then? So we were up until February. Okay. We were growing very well still up until February and that's slowed down now. And the reason is because people realize what they what they spent in Q4. And the reason is, is because the cost of living is clear. So I'll give you an example. If, if they had 500 pounds disposable to spend before, they would have spent X amount saving towards their holiday, let's mm. say per month. Then they might have had money to buy maybe two pairs of trainers at 140, 150 each. Some of the most popular pairs right now are more like 180 to 200 and they've got less than that 500 pound. So naturally they are still buying goods, but they have to be more choosy. Yeah. So we're seeing stuff like they people get paid and as they should be more choosy, right? I always say to people, handle your family and your bills first. Don't spend on trainers. Do that last. It's always about handling your own shit and then sure. spending on the luxury second. I would never want anyone that uses our site to break themselves to buy trainers via the sole supplier. Of course. Never. But that's just a natural way of it. If they if they're in winter their gas bills have gone up by double, some of them triple, then and their rent as well, because the interest rates and the mortgages have gone up, they just have less to spend. So it's happening now because people splashed in Q four, November, Black Friday, Christmas, mm -hmm. and now people are starting to feel the effects. So what we see is people get paid and then they have a little spend and then it goes very quiet a week after. Whereas you could see it before in the day, people would would spend consistently throughout the month. Yes, it would drop off before sure. payday, but now it's a lot more clear that people are spending and then saving, clearly. So what? how are you planning for it? What's the plans for soul supply right now? And if you're thinking you're going into more of a lull period, mm. are, is it focused more on just the content because you know people aren't going to spend? Are you looking at potential growth? Man, what what people don't want during an economic crisis is to be sold to constantly. Yeah. So we're naturally a product-driven business, so there's always going to be that element. But what people are doing right now is they're looking for more value, more entertainment, something to make them smile, something to take their mind away from the shit situation that they're finding themselves in. So to answer your question, we're giving back more to our audience. Okay. We're giving them more humorous, entertainment-driven content. We're asking them more. What do you want to know about this? Have you seen this? A, a much more engagement-related stuff in amongst some of the sale-driven stuff. Because mm -hmm. the people that we remembered after an economic crisis are the ones that handled their audiences with care, yeah. not the ones that said, buy, 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 buy. They're the companies that people will be like, you don't care about me. Yeah. And genuinely, like, I care about our team and our audience and I want them to come out of this and remember us for the right reasons, not for the wrong ones. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just such a great way to look at things because so many, it's like you said, so many businesses, they just put their fingers in their ears, just push product, push product, push product. And they forget it's about how you make people feel, what you're, you're doing for them. Mm. And part of that largely comes from you. And Dan, I'm guessing as well. Sorry, did you say? Yeah, so Dan as well, yeah. yeah. Who's, uh, I kind of come out with the impulsive ideas. He develops them and he helps plan them and he comes up with his own ones as well. So yeah, Dan and we've got an amazing team, Johnny. Like, I'm thankful to work with some very, very established industry people and just people that I call my friends. Like we've got, we're lucky to have a, a, a retention rate that's three times higher than average people generally stick around when they join our company because we focus on making it a great place to work. I used to work at places I hated, like I said, 10 jobs from 17 to 24. Course, yeah. I used to learn what, what a bad leader was. I used to learn what bad culture was. Mm -hmm. And I made it my mission to never let that happen at the sole supplier. And we've had periods where it's been tough because we've been growing. Yeah. But we've always brought it back to how do we make it better for you? It's a partnership. It's not me saying what we do. It's what do you guys think we should do? Mm -hmm. How do we make it a great environment for all of us? It has to be a partnership. You have to serve your team just as much as they serve you. And that's, I think, why people stick around. Yeah, but in this time, we have to be careful. And I think most entrepreneurs in this time should be, should be thinking about, if anything, an economic crisis should give people a reason to look at their, look at all of their costs look at the areas that your business could fail 
because that's something that people forget. An optimistic thinker doesn't want to do that. Mm. An optimistic thinker just wants to go after the opportunities. So a crisis like this is a time to look at where could your business fail? Because that will incite more hunger in you mm. and it will let you understand what you need to do next. Because something might be around the corner. If you haven't analyzed that, created the defensible strategies, it, it could lead to the business disappearing without you knowing it. And this happens. People find themselves in a situation that they haven't planned for, the unknown unknowns. So if you're an optimistic thinker, plan for those scenarios. If you're a pessimistic thinker, it's going to be pretty hard right now because all you can see is just crashed Silicon Valley bank going, you know, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. People are probably absolutely shitting themselves if they're a pessimistic thinker. Um, but yeah. So, George, with that optimistic pessimism, what have mm. you got to do next? Yeah, it's funny you say it like that. I said you've got to be all three things, optimistic, pessimistic, and realistic. Yeah. You can't just be one of them. Um, you've got to be all three. But what are we going to do next? Um, it's all about giving back right now. That's our motto right now. Mm. How can we give back to the community and the audience? How can we make them part of everything we're doing? If they want a new pair of shoes, how can we give them everything they want about that shoe without saying buy now? And that's we want to be remembered for that. So what we're doing right now and what we'll continue to do next is being the absolute authority of UK trainer culture. So when we get out the other side of this economic crisis, we will be remembered as that and continue our rise to be the only place you need to buy your next pair of trainers. Nice. So your advice to other business owners, entrepreneurs is really think about the customer, do right by them. My advice to other entrepreneurs is lead with your heart during this tough time. A true test of your leadership is during a tough time. Everyone can be a good leader when things are easy, but not everyone can be a good leader and hold their composure when shit is hitting the fan. So when the external conditions are rough, can you still make decisions in the same way? Can you still bring the same energy, even though in your head there's loads of stuff going on? And can you treat people with compassion and empathy to understand that everything will be okay and give them hope, even in the darkness? It's everything, leading from the heart. I think that's a great note to end on. Plenty for people to think on there. Thank you so much, George. Thanks, Johnny. I mean, what a great conversation. Seriously, to go from your parents' toddler shoes to becoming one of the kings of sneakers is just one of my favorite stories. And I said it during the episode, and I'll say it again, I am very, very envious of George. The fact that he was able to turn his passion into a full-time business, something he loves doing, something him and his team and his community are continually growing in, I just think it's absolutely fantastic. And I hope you loved the episode, and I hope you got some real value from it. There was some great stories, insights into how to run a business, how to take care of your team, and definitely some different thoughts of what it means to be a leader. So we have a new episode coming next week, and I'm going to keep it a mystery right now, but it is the person who I owe credit to for getting George on the podcast and a couple of other guests. It's somebody who manages their personal brands. I'm very excited for you to hear what he has to say. Till then, I hope you've had a great day, and I'll catch you next week.